Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Understanding why people are or aren't vaccinated is crucial to public health responses to diseases like measles and, of course, COVID. The general assumption is that people are hesitant and don't want the vaccine. But is this really the case, and how do we go about measuring it? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Dr Kerry Wiley, a Senior Research Fellow with the University of Sydney School of Public Health in the Faculty of Medicine and Health. Kerry's research focuses on the social and behavioural aspects of immunisation and other preventive health behaviours, and their implications for policy and practice. Kerry is a member of the World Health Organization's Measuring Behavioural and Social Drivers of Vaccination Working Group and a founding member of the Collaboration of Social Science in Immunisation. Kerry, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Natalie. It's nice to be here. So vaccines and vaccine hesitancy, um, low vaccine rates, they're a huge topic right now because of COVID, but researchers like you have been working on low vaccination globally for some time. So with that in mind, I wanted to start by asking you to give us a bit of a history of vaccinations, low vaccination rates and vaccine hesitancy pre-COVID, in particular the work that has been done to understand why people choose not to get vaccinated against preventable diseases. Yeah, well, it's um, in a short word, it's complicated. Basically, uh, vaccine refusal has been around since vaccines themselves. So as far back as smallpox vaccines back in the 1800s. So vaccine hesitancy has been around as long as vaccinations themselves have been around. And there are a lot of reasons why people won't have a vaccine. And it's not always because they don't agree with vaccines. And One of the things actually I might start by doing is defining hesitancy because it's such a broad term and it's applied to everybody usually that hasn't had a vaccine, whereas we define hesitancy as a motivational state, if you like. So it's somebody who's undecided or unwilling to have the vaccine, but there are a whole lot of things that can affect whether somebody's hesitant or not. Okay. Yeah. Why don't you um, tell us what some of those reasons might be? Yeah, so because if you think about it, we live in a very social world and we we don't make things like vaccine decisions in isolation or in a vacuum. There's a whole lot of stuff in our lives going on around us that play into how we think and feel about vaccines and our motivation or our, our level of hesitancy. And so what we tend to do is look at it in groups. So the first thing I look at is how people think and they feel about vaccines. So this is thinking about the risk of the disease and whether or not there's a risk to the vaccine versus the benefit to the vaccine, um, sort of any trust issues I might have with the medical system or whether I trust them a lot, confidence in the vaccine, all of those things, those internal processes to me, if I'm making the decision about the vaccine. But then there's the things that are external to me. So what are the people around me doing? Are my friends vaccinating? Are my family vaccinating? Do they want me to be vaccinated or do they have strong opinions otherwise? 
has my doctor or my local health provider recommended that I have the vaccine? That's known to affect vaccine uptake. And things in some settings like uh, gender roles, for example, if a mother wants to take her child to a vaccine clinic, she may need a male relative to accompany her. And so that's an added complication as well. Let me just jump in there. Are there situations where permission is required from male parents to get children vaccinated? Yes, in some situations there are, although interestingly we've done a little bit of work around that and while within the household the decision is usually made by the mother, in some cases they still need the father's input. There are other situations where it's actually the mother-in-law that makes the final call. It really is dependent on the culture and the setting. So these drivers that you're talking about in terms of internal motivations and also the external factors such as what your friends and family are doing, do they change over time? Do people um, experience hesitancy and then, you know, there might be a change in the external factors that prompts them to come forward and get vaccinated? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen it with COVID where initially when there were low levels of COVID in some places, there were low levels of vaccination. And then once the COVID cases rose, people came forward and got vaccinated. So that's a very simple example. The other thing that affects vaccine uptake that I probably didn't get to before were practical issues. So I might be willing and and able and wanting to go and have that vaccine, but the vaccine might not be available to me in my area or the clinic might not be open in convenient hours, or I might go to a clinic where I don't feel I'm respected by the people providing the vaccine. And so these, again, are external but more practical issues that might be affecting my ability to get a vaccine. Yeah, I mean, they're really important to note those as well. Um, I just wanted to come back to the comment you made earlier about trust because I was really interested to learn that previous poor experiences with vaccination can lead to future mistrust of different vaccinations. So I'm thinking in particular of the experimental dengue vaccine rollout in the Philippines, which particularly affected children. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the situation in the dengue vaccine rollout in the Philippines was that they rolled out the vaccine in a childhood program. And after the rollout had begun, they found that there was a safety issue with the vaccine. And there was a big political furor that followed that as well. And it resulted in a lot of mistrust in the government and the health system and the vaccines themselves. And it did have a knock-on effect, for example, with measles vaccines, I think, further down the track. So that's a really good example of something like that happening in response to a true vaccine safety scare. We've also got other examples where there has been that kind of a reaction to rumour. So things like in some settings, vaccines have been rumoured to affect fertility and so people stopped having the vaccines. But then what our research here has found that on an individual level, previous bad experiences with not just vaccines but previous bad medical experiences beyond vaccines – have actually impacted their vaccination decisions sometimes years after the fact. And where are you getting this data from in the Southeast Asian context where you're witnessing this sort of behaviour? I mean, the data I'm working with at the moment, uh, we actually haven't started collecting the behavioural and social data in a uniformed manner, which is what we're planning to do in the next couple of years. 
Yeah, so this project that uh, your research is falling under is part of the WHO's Measuring Behavioural and Social Drivers of Vaccination project, which I think has been running for a couple of years now, meaning that you have, like so many of us, endured or adapted to the COVID pivot. How has that manifested in terms of this project? I mean, has it affected your ability to collect data? Uh, Yes and no (laughs) is the short answer. So originally the idea behind this project, it's run by WHO headquarters, was to be able to measure the social and behavioural drivers of vaccination across all settings globally. So that's low, middle and high income settings. And to be able to measure it reliably and in a way that can allow comparison across settings. So it's a big ask. And so the project I've been involved in has developed a survey for childhood vaccines, but also now for COVID vaccines, which we have gone ahead and validated to ensure it's reliable across low, middle and high income settings. So we were right, we were gearing up to go in country across a range of low, middle and high income settings to validate and then COVID hit and we got hit with a double whammy. Number one, we couldn't travel (laughs) to go and do this work. And secondly, originally the remit was for childhood vaccine and all of a sudden we needed one for COVID vaccines very quickly. And so we were able to pivot and switch to online and networking and working with groups in country remotely. And a couple of the countries were in our region. So we worked with colleagues at the Universitas Indonesia to validate the survey in Indonesia. But we also were able to work with people in Pakistan and India. There were other countries we we, several countries um, in the African region and also in the South American region. What a huge project and not just switching online but also expanding to include COVID, which of course goes well beyond childhood vaccination considerations. I just wanted to ask you because I don't have a medicine and health background and many of our listeners don't either, so can you tell us what validating this data looks like? Oh, yeah, sure. Validating means a particular type of terminology that we use to speak about whether or not a survey is actually measuring what we think it is. And there's actually a lot of work that goes into making sure that when I ask this question on this survey, the person that's answering the question is understanding the question in the same way that I'm intending it to be asked, if that makes sense. And as you can imagine, once you get cultural context and then language differences and then dialect differences into the mix, it's quite a complex operation. The other thing we've done with these tools is that we've gone beyond survey data and we've also developed qualitative interview data. And so the difference being surveys are generally uh, yes, no type answers. So would you have a vaccine? Yes, no, maybe. So you can imagine that kind of a survey answer would yield very different data to if I was standing next to a person and asking them in language, would you have a vaccine? And then tell me why, or tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. So the data is a lot richer. You're able to better understand the drivers and the motivations for them choosing to go ahead or not go ahead with the vaccination. Absolutely. So that's what this work with the WHO has been about. We've developed the survey to give us, I think of it like looking at a map. If you're looking at Google Maps, you can see the general lay of the land and the general patterns 
but not much detail. So that's what the survey gives you is the general lay of the land and the patterns. And what the interview data gives you is the depth and the detail that you wouldn't get from a larger map view. So now that you've validated the data in in Indonesia and and in other parts of the world, what is the next step for this project in terms of drawing on, on some of the lessons learnt to better inform the work that you're trying to do? So it's been such a great project. So the lessons learned were obviously from working with colleagues and partners in country in terms of what worked and what didn't, trying to get the survey out and, and how to validate the data. We've also developed a user guidance so people can go ahead and use these tools independently. And so we've also gained a lot of practical insight into how well and how easily the tools have been adaptable to local contexts and cultural contexts. And so the next step is to start getting the tools out there and being used. And I've just been awarded an NHMRC investigator grant to take this work forward in the region. And so the idea is to take these tools now and to help program implementers in health departments in the region start using these tools to be able to measure why people are or aren't vaccinated in their jurisdiction and then take it a step further and use that information with other data that's available to really help inform public health decision making. So for example, with COVID, we tend to use epidemiological data. So how the disease is operating around humans. And that's the data we're using to inform decisions like vaccine mandates or mask use or social distancing or lockdowns. What my vision with this project is to actually incorporate how the humans operate around the disease or behave around the disease. And so we can use both of those types of data to help inform those types of decisions to make sure that they're more more easily taken up. Amazing. Well, congratulations on your NHMRC grant. This is such an important project. Um, You you did mention COVID. So let's just talk about COVID for a little bit now because, I don't know, I guess we're mid-pandemic, let's hope. Maybe we're close to the end of it. It swept the globe in 2020 and the vaccination development and rollout has been quite remarkable for its speed and efficacy. Despite this, some people are not getting vaccinated. Can you tell us what some of the medical reasons are for not getting vaccinated? So when I talk about medical reasons, it's what we call contraindications. So it's what a medical doctor would look at somebody and say, okay, you really shouldn't have this vaccine. It's vaccine dependent because we've got so different types of vaccines. For example, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines that are available here in Australia, generally a medical reason for not having those would be that you've had an anaphylactic reaction to one of the components of those vaccines in the past, or you've had a really bad, serious reaction to the first dose. Uh, With the AstraZeneca vaccine, the same thing applies, but there's also other pre-existing conditions that are related to clotting and this kind of thing that a doctor will assess. I see. And so what about the people who don't get vaccinated by choice? Um, Setting aside medical contraindications, those people who don't have medical contraindications and nevertheless choose not to get vaccinated, is it correct to use terms like anti-vaxxers or is it more complicated than that? It's way more complicated. In fact, I don't like using the term anti-vaxxers because it carries such negative connotations. And because 
you know, the media and the discourse in Australia in, in particular is very, very polarised and anti-vaxxers are, are really, really given a hard time. And the research I've done, particularly with non-vaccinating parents, so this isn't around COVID, but it does go towards the COVID vaccines. The majority of the people I, I spoke to who reject childhood vaccines, for example, aren't what you'd call an anti-vaccination activist. They've, they've chosen for other reasons not to get their children vaccinated and they actually don't identify as anti-vaxxers. In fact, some of them go to great lengths to say they're not anti-vaxxers and the same can be applied for COVID vaccine rejection. You know, people who have had bad experiences, there's people who are afraid of the vaccine, there's oh, oh, there's so many different concerns that people can have that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're activists and they're out there and they're chanting in the street. They might be just really scared. But the minute somebody says they're not vaccinated, somebody will yell at them. Yeah, there's a lot of stigma around it and it is a very polarising time, isn't it, to have an opinion on vaccination that is not a majority opinion. Mm. And people people find it very difficult to talk about and people don't know what quite what to do with it when someone says they're not vaccinated and the, the reaction is quite often just outrage. And so then you've got this situation where people who have chosen not to vaccinate also don't divulge that they're not vaccinated because they're afraid of the social consequences. And so it's not very conducive to conversations that might help somebody move towards vaccination. And have you observed this sort of um, stigma or, or polarising behaviour in a Southeast Asian context as well when it comes to vaccine hesitancy or choosing not to get vaccinated? Well, we haven't actually measured a whole lot at the moment. We've got some work about to start in Indonesia in a couple of provinces there. So that's where the work coming ahead is going, particularly with the COVID survey and the in-depth interviews. It's to try and get to the bottom of whether or not there is a stigma. Um, anecdotally, we're hearing that there is, but it just depends. It depends on whether it's actually hesitancy or whether or not it's access is the issue. Well, speaking of access, you know, how are you rolling out the next stage of the program in a place like Indonesia, which is so decentralised, um, so spread out? Are you working very closely with partners in country? Well, it's, yes, we're rolling the survey out, working closely with partners in country. We're actually working on developing training modules at the moment to assist with that. I actually did a qualitative study a couple of years ago as part of this project where I went and spoke with immunisation program managers, both at a country level, but also in the regional level positions as well. And the gist of the results was that most of them are quite comfortable with survey and quantitative methods. It was more the qualitative interview type data that they needed more capacity building with. So we're working with partners in country to A, working towards training people to be able to undertake this type of research. But as I said, we're, we're also going to be working, this is what this project that I'm about to start will be about, is identifying countries who, first of all, want to start including this type of data and secondly working out what works best for them and increasing capacity in country to be able to do it long term. 
Mm. I think this project really demonstrates for me that your work is not just about getting needles in arms, uh, to use a very tired phrase, but all those considerations around cultural competency and language and access and, you know, the impact of family. There's a lot of other context going on here that you're really engaging with on a very deep level. So all the best with it. Before we wrap up, there is just one last question I wanted to ask you about um, vaccine access. And it's, This question of vaccine inequality, uh, which we've heard about most recently in an African context, but also closer to home in the Pacific. So in terms of the work that you've been doing with the WHO, what lessons um, are you taking away in terms of vaccine equity? Well, most of the work I'm doing is more on an individual level, but on a broader level, I think, you know, there's a few things personally I think can be done and one of the big ones is waiving intellectual property rights by the manufacturers. So that would mean that the vaccines would be more easily manufactured in more places but also would um, keep the cost of that down so they wouldn't be paying for the rights, if you like, for um, manufacturing the the vaccines. Um, Some of the other things that I've sort of looked at and thought about is is that, you know, here we are in a high-end income country like Australia staring down the barrel of third doses, so booster shots. And there are neighbours of ours in the region and in the vicinity that haven't got everybody even first, let alone second dose. So it's to me about looking out past our own borders and maybe recognising that if we look after our neighbours, in the long run, we'll all benefit from that. Yeah, that's a fantastic point to end on. You know, I, I heard an interview the other day where on radio where a caller rang in and was asking about vaccinations for his pet and the medical health professional um, sort of pushed back on that and said we really need to focus on making sure everyone around the world has had their first and second doses first, you know, before we start thinking about pets. So, Kerry, thank you so much for joining us at SEAC Stories. It's really wonderful to know that there are public health researchers such as yourself who've been working on um, issues relating to collecting consistent data and, you know, inquiring about access to vaccination around the world, even pre-COVID, and bringing those lessons to bear on the current pandemic. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.